Well, we are starting a new series. You see it on the graphic. You probably saw what we were promoting in social media. This series that we've entitled Ecclesia, really getting after who we are as a church. And if you think about this question of who is the church, you probably would get a lot of different answers. You might have a different answer than someone who's sitting next to you. If I asked you, hey, can you help explain to me who is the church? Like, like just think about that for a second. Can we just like, like, just for a minute, imagine that we have no context for the church whatsoever. And I know that's hard for us to do, especially where we live or maybe your background or whatever it is, but just think about it. You're sitting with someone uh, or you're the person that's sitting in a room and you're asking someone, hey, I'm hearing this word church a lot. Can you explain to me what it is? I wonder how you'd answer that question. Some of you have been born in church. I mean, me, man, I was born in church. Like, I don't remember a time when I wasn't in church. So for me, I just take for granted, like, church is, is something that you do. Like, it's something that you're supposed to do. But I want us to really go back to that fundamental question in this series. Who is the church? I wonder if some of you were to answer that question. Some of you, you're so programmed to think of it this way, you would answer that question, who is the church? You would say, man, it's an organization. Like, I'm going to give you a term if you don't know, realize. I mean, you would say, you would think of the 501c3 nonprofit, right? Like, that's, that's the church. Like, you need to have one of those to be a church. You need to have one of those so people, when they give donations, can get a tax receipt at the end of the year. Like, like, you may fall into the trap to think of a church as an organization because you've grown up in it for so long. Like, you think of officers and you, you think of all these different types of things. And, and I get that, but I want you to not think that way in this series. Others of you might think of it as a building, right? And, and we're so thankful to be in this building, a church that's been mobile for 14 years. Like, some of us, when we think about the church, we think of Man, I'm so thankful that we have a building, and we, we know we're not supposed to think of the church that way, but our minds automatically go to a building. Man, I've played in churches for the last 10 years, and I can't tell you the amount of conversations I've had to have in Naples, Florida, when people are like, you meet in a school? Seriously? And having to remind people that a church isn't a building, but so often we get caught up into thinking that, do we not? Maybe this is you. Maybe you would answer, who is the church? And your mind goes to a past hurt. You may be here today, and it's taken a lot for you to come into these doors. Because when you think of the church, you think of a past hurt. And you were involved in a church, and it hurt you deeply. Someone let you down. Someone said something. There was, a, there was division, whatever it may be, and when you think of church, unfortunately, it does not give you good thoughts, but it gives you painful thoughts. And so when you th hear the word church, there's something about it that causes you to cringe, there's something about it that causes your soul to mourn because you equate hurt with church. Now here's the reality. Whether you think of a church as an organization, whether you think of a church as a building, whether you think of the word church and it brings up past hurt, or maybe there's other things that you think of when you hear that word church, I want to encourage you to put those things aside in this series so that we can have God's word define for us who is the church 
and what are we called to be about? Let's allow God's word to define that, not past circumstances, not our own thoughts, not our own observations, not our own backgrounds, but God's word. And this message this morning is going to be a little bit different. Because normally what we do here at Salem Chapel, Salem Chapel is, is we open up God's word and we walk verse by verse through one particular passage of scripture. We believe that's important so that we can get the, the idea and the context. And so we're going to do something a little bit different this morning because we're, we're going to allow God's word to answer that question today, which means we're going to go to various passages of scripture, which we normally don't do. But I want us to do that this morning because I think it's important. So if the church isn't an organization, if the church isn't a building, if the church shouldn't be defined by our hurts, then where is the first mention of church in the Bible? And so I want to show you that. Turn to Matthew 16, verses 15 through 18. And so just get your fingers ready because we're going to be turning to various passages of Scripture. Matthew 16, verses 15 through 18, we're going to find our first mention of the word church. And so look at what we find in Matthew 16, verses 15 through 18. It says, and he said to them, he is Jesus. He's having a dialogue with his disciples because there's a lot of people that are calling Jesus various different things. Are you a prophet or who are you? And so Jesus poses this question to his disciples, to those 12 that have left everything and followed him and answered his call to follow him. And he says to them, but who do you say that I am? Everybody else is saying these things, but, but guys, who do you say that I am? And look at Simon Peter, right? Peter, we love Peter. He's the first one to always raise his hand, right? Simon Peter replies, but here's going to give a great answer. Okay, he's not going to stick his foot in his mouth. He says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, the Lord has showed you this, Peter, and you gave the right answer. Now look at what he says in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter... So up to this point, he's Simon Barjona, but he says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my, here's the first time this word is mentioned in the Bible, church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here's what he's saying, Peter, you're going to be instrumental in building this thing that we call the church, that I'm going to call the church. Peter, you're going to have a significant role in that. But it's not just focusing on Peter alone. What he's saying is, Peter, you're going to have a significant role on this, but here is what the church is built upon. It's built on this reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But the amazing promise is this thing that the disciples really don't even yet understand what Jesus is going to create and the purpose that this group of people are going to have he says upon this rock I will build my church and this is an amazing amazing promise that I think we bypass so often and it's quoted so you know just all the time and 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 I don't think we we just rest in the weight and the promise of this that Peter upon this rock 
I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nothing, nothing is going to have victory over this thing called the church. Now, what does that word mean? What's the significance of that word? That word is the Greek word ekklesia. And normally when I get up here, I'm not even trying, I'm not gonna give you every Greek word so that you can think that I'm trying to make myself sound so much smarter than I am. I promise you, that is not my intention. But I do want you to understand, I do want you to know the word for church. I think it's so important because it's gonna drive home and answer that question, this is who we are. Because that word ecclesia literally means this, a group of people called out for a particular purpose. Isn't that an amazing word? Or it can just refer to called out ones. So in other words, the church is not an organization, it's not a building, it's not defined by your past hurts, though I don't minimize those, or I don't even say that those those aren't things that happen to you. No, no, no. The church is a group of people that have been called out, that have been saved by God, not to sit, but have been called for a particular purpose. Such weight and significance to that word. There's such depth to that word. It really reminds us what we exist for. I'm not a group of people. I'm not someone who's called out by God who has been saved by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to just sit, to just come and fill a seat, to sing some songs, to give some money in the offering plate. If I'm really spiritual, to serve in children's ministry. Like, like it's more than that. He's called me out for a particular purpose. Turn over now to Ephesians 1, verses 16 through 22. So first mention of the word church is in Matthew. Church hasn't even officially started yet. Church begins in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches this amazing message in Jerusalem and over 3,000 people come to trust Christ as their Savior and the church begins there in Jerusalem. Now we find ourselves in Ephesians and Paul, who has been saved by God, called out by God, is a part of the church. Paul, the person who was persecuting the church, writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. And look at what he says. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having your eyes of your heart and light. In other words, here's my prayer for you, that I want you to grow in understanding these three things. And what are the three things? Look at what he says. That you may know that you're growing in your understanding of what? What is the hope to which you, he has called you? That I'm growing every day in the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. That I'm no longer a slave to my sin, but I am a child of God, forgiven by God. I have all of God's favor on my life. I have a home awaiting me in heaven. That I'm growing in this hope. That I'm finding my hope more and more on a daily basis as I grow in my relationship with the Lord. That my hope is more and more rooted in Him and not in the other things of my life. Like that's Paul's prayer for the church. But then he says... That you may also know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That I'm growing more and more 
and not defining myself but what I have or what I don't have, but what I have in Jesus Christ and the hope that is awaiting me in heaven. And what's the third thing? That I would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. That I'm growing and understanding the power that Jesus Christ has given me through the Holy Spirit that works in my life, that changes me, that changes my relationships, that changes how I view the people that I interact with at work, that changes my perspective, that gives me the strength to do what the Lord has called me to do and to say no to the flesh, like that power. That he worked in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one that is to come, verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head, him being Jesus, gave Jesus his head over all things, here's this word, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, Jesus is the head of the church. The church. Every person that places their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is part of the church. Why? Because the word church means called out ones. What am I called from? I'm called from my sin to live in newness of life. So if I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior today, I am part of the church. It's more than I'm a part of Salem Chapel. I'm a part of the church, global. Every person who's placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You know what I love? Is it doesn't say here, I know I'm gonna be a little facetious here, but in verse 22, what it doesn't say is he gave him as head over all things to the first Baptist church at Ephesus. Doesn't mean that in the Greek, I can tell you. He doesn't say he's given him his head over all things to Ephesus Chapel. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say he gave, gave him his head over all things to Ephesus Community Church. You see where I'm going with this? What does it say? It says he gave him his head over all things to the church. What I love as well is when Paul writes this letter, knowing it's going to be passed around, he also doesn't write this letter to some First Baptist Church of Ephesus or Ephesus Salem Chapel or Ephesus Community Church. Or, no, no, no. He writes it to the church at Ephesus. See, it's just driving home the reality that a church is not an organization. Though the reality is we've got to abide by the laws of the government and you have to set those things up and that's important. But what I'm trying to do in this series is get you to think of church as more than just Salem Chapel. But to think of the church as what God has created. And yes, what fleshes itself down to our local church. But not only our local church, to every man, woman, and child who places their trust in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you something. You don't have to answer out loud. But do you have a mission for your life, like a mission statement for your life? You have that. Some of you are like, yeah, you know what it is, Johnny? Today, it's survive today. That's my mission statement. Survive today. Some of you are like, I've already achieved it. We're here. Our kids are here. It's been a crazy morning. Like, yes, I have a mission statement every day. Get through the day. 
Yes, I have a mission statement. I want to get married. Some of you are like, that is my mission statement. I'm even scanning the crowd today. <laughs> right? Hey, by the way, church is a great place to find a mate. Like, don't get me wrong. But maybe that's your mission statement. Some of you are like, I'm, my mission statement is to stay married. Or maybe your mission statement is, is man, I, want, I really want to have kids. Like, that's a desire in me. And if I'm honest with you, that's driving everything that I do. It's always on my mind. Or maybe it's to raise your kids. Look, look, I get it. I get it. That's you, just a little commercial, and you need to sign up for our gospel setting parenting class next Sunday night at 6 o'clock, but I get it. Maybe it's right now, if you're to be honest, you're like, man, I, I'm here in my work, and I want to be here. Maybe your personality is whatever the top of the ladder is and whatever my corporation I'm involved in or business I'm in, man, that's where I want to be, and that's my mission statement. See, I think every person needs a mission statement. So you're not just going through life haphazardly, but you're going through life with a purpose. Remember, back to our definition, what does ecclesia mean? It's a group of people called out for a purpose. And if God has called us to a purpose, not just to live this life haphazardly with no purpose, but he's given us a purpose, then I believe we need to work at articulating why are we here? If the church is a group of called out people, why are we here? Because I want to encourage you that your mission statement for your life, if it involved one of those things, it's so much bigger than that. Even though I don't minimize those things, your mission statement is so much bigger than that. My mission statement for my life is so much bigger than that. And when I look at our church now, going to our local church, I, what my desire is, what our elders' desire is, is that we would be a people that would be united in the purpose that God has called us to, if that indeed is the church. So here's Salem Chapel's mission statement. It's this, to glorify God, by making and mobilizing disciples who represent the gospel to every man, woman, and child. And here's my prayer, and here's my hope for you, and here's my desire for you, here's the leadership's desire for you, is that you would not view this mission statement over time as something that is tied to an organization, but that when someone asks you the question, if you call this place your home, what is your mission statement? That these would be the words that you have adopted for your life. Because they come straight out of Scripture. Can we, just, can we just break up this mission statement? Can we just take time to see the significance of every phrase? What is the first phrase? To glorify God. That's the aim of everything you are called to do. That's the aim of everything that I'm called to do. We're going to talk more about that in the series to come. But that is the aim of everything. Every single thing that I do is for God's glory. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether I eat, whether I drink, in whatever I do, I do for the glory of God. It is part of the purpose of which God has called me to. But let's think of the next phrase, making disciples. This is what we're called to do. This is what you're called to do, not just me. 
This is what you're called to do as well as what I'm called to do. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 tells us we need to go. In other words, in our going, in whatever we do, we are called to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I've commanded you. And Jesus says, hey, I wanna encourage you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But what are we called to do? We are called to make disciples. But it doesn't stop there. Here's what I love. We're also called to mobilize them. It's an awesome word because that gives action to what we're called to do. And I want you to turn to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Turn there because this is such a key passage of Scripture that I think we miss. And we miss it primarily, those of us who miss it are people that have been in the church for quite a while. We're the ones that miss it. The people that have just trusted Jesus Christ, what I've found is, dude, they get it. But somehow over time, if we're not careful, this idea starts to erode from our mindset. Because mobilizing disciples, this is why we make disciples. This is why we do it. This is why we're obedient to what God has called us to do in Matthew 28. That we're called to empower disciples to make disciples. Look at what it says in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. It says, and he gave, that's Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So he's given these gifts and these, and these, and these, these gifts that he's given to individuals, but he's done it for a purpose. Once again, back to our definition, to do what? Well, I love how we get the answer. Look at verse 12. To equip the saints, read that with me, to equip the saints Okay, let me say it again, so make sure you're with me. Everybody with me now? Ready? To equip the saints, one more time, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. He didn't say he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to do the work of the ministry. Didn't say that. Doesn't say that in any translation, and if it says it in your translation, find another Bible. Doesn't say that in any translation that I'm aware of that's worth anything. We miss that. That you know what my primary responsibility as as a pastor of this church is to equip you to do the work of the ministry, to equip you to embrace the purpose by which God has called you. Every pastor we have on staff, every elder we have on staff, that's the that's the purpose is to do that, and it doesn't mean that I'm exempt from that. But so often we got caught up into thinking, well, we pay the pastors their salaries, and we, we hold them to a certain expectation and certain measurables because they are called to do the work of the ministry. Somewhere along the line, we got off on that. Look at what else it says. For the building up of the body of Christ. How long are we supposed to do this? until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped when, every, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The most unhealthy church, 
the most unhealthy group of called out ones is a group of people that have forgotten that not only are they called out ones, but they're called out ones for a purpose. The most unhealthy church is a church that thinks that all their responsibility is is to come in and to sit in the seats and to watch someone preach on stage and to see pastors work themselves to the bone, but, we're, but the rest of us aren't supposed to do anything. It's not what God has called us to. In fact, the measurable that these gifts that God gives certain people in the church, the measure by which they are doing what they are supposed to be doing is how much of the body is actually doing the work. See, we're called not just to make disciples, but we're also called to mobilize them, to embrace the purpose by which God has called you. And then it says, represent in that mission statement. And you're like, that's a weird word. Like, why wouldn't it say to glorify God by making and mobilizing disciples who share the gospel to every man, woman, and child? That's a good question. I hope you're asking that. Because here's the significance of the word represent. It literally means to speak and to act on delegated authority. Like, if you look up that word in the English, that's what it means. It's an amazing word, is it not? That what I've been called to do What my mission is, what my purpose is, is to glorify God in all that I do, to make disciples, to mobilize them, to do what? For what purpose? To represent, to speak and act on delegated authority. Whose authority? Jesus Christ's authority. He's the head of the church. Listen to me. Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of Salem Chapel. It's reminding ourselves of that. He's the head of my life. He's the head of this local church. He's the head of the church. He's the head of the church of Winston-Salem. But I've been called to represent, to speak the truth, but also to act. It's an amazing word. And then there's this phrase that we came up with to articulate clearly what is our mission, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we're called to represent? Romans 1.16 says, Paul says, it is the power of God into salvation for every person that believes. And then look at this phrase. Some of you may be asking, why, did, why is it phrased this way? Every man, woman, and child. Like, man, they could have made this mission statement a whole lot shorter so it would be easier for me to remember. Like, we could have said to glorify God by making and mobilizing disciples to represent the gospel of every person. And you're right. But I don't know about you, but when I hear the, ter- the words, every man, woman, and child, it has greater weight to it. It gives the totality of who we are called to represent the gospel to. You know, Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Every man, woman, and child deserves an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It breaks down racial barriers. It breaks down every barrier that exists. It breaks down every class. When I am reminded that my mission is to make and mobilize disciples who represent the gospel to who? To every man, woman, and child. Just wanna give you a statistic. 
80% of the people that live in a five-mile radius of this facility. So just think about that. Five-mile radius of this facility, less than 20% go to a church that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, most of us, man, we're rubbing shoulders every day. And I, when I say most of us, I am for sure referring to myself. Most of the time, I'm rubbing shoulders with, and I rarely run into a person who doesn't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a culture today where it's like, yeah, man, I go to church. Yeah, you go, yeah, I go to church too. Yeah, yeah, I know the name Jesus. No, 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 80%. This is not some weird statistic. We've actually done a survey that has revealed that 80%, it's not that they don't go to church, but they don't go to a church that actually And here's the deal, we're just taking into account because you're a certain denomination that you're actually proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, which that often is a stretch. So when I say at least 80%, just let that sink in for you. That when you pull out of this parking lot and you see that sign that says every man, woman, and child, that's there for a reason. It's there to begin to remind you that you have a purpose and I have a purpose. And every man, woman, and child starts in my own household. But it flows out of there. And the reason why I want you to just allow that statistic to just marinate in your heart is because then we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with that information? And I think we got to focus on four things that is radically going to blow some of your minds. Here's the first thing we need to focus on. We have to, as a church, move from a collecting community to a mobilizing community. Where it's more than just how many people can we collect in a room, but is there purpose to how we are mobilizing you? Are we going to own the lostness of this city? We've read the passages, Matthew 28, Ephesians 4, Acts 1.8, but we also need to move from attendance to transformation. You know, it's sad. I can easily get caught up into it as much as anybody else that we can define the success of our church by how many people are in these seats. And I'm not minimizing that because every person that's in a seat, you're in a seat, you're a person. You're valuable to God. You're valuable to this church. But so often we get caught up in defining the success of a church by how many people are attending it rather than saying, how are we actually giving people opportunity to seize, to seize the things that we want them to grow in so that they can begin to be transformed by Jesus Christ? Just like Paul's prayer, that they can grow in the hope, they can grow in their inheritance, they can grow in understanding the power that has been given to them through the Holy Spirit. We have to move from defining ourselves by how many attend to how many people are being transformed. Here's the third thing, we have to move from competition to collaboration. Salem Chapel is not going to reduce the lostness of over 300,000 people in the greater Winston-Salem area. It's not going to happen. Do we want to grow? Do we want to see our influence grow? Do we want to see more people come to Christ? Absolutely. But it's not going to happen only by this church. It's going to happen by collaborating with other churches that believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And praise God, we've already begun to see inroads on that. But it's moving from competition to collaboration. That's why we pray for other churches in our services. We're not in competition with Calvary. We're not in competition with Two Cities. We're not in competition with Redemption Hill. We're not in competition with Ronaldo. We're not, I could go on and on and on. We're not in competition with them. 
Here's another thing we need to move through. We need to move from addition to multiplication. You ever notice in the Bible that when God does something, he always multiplies? Because God's a God of multiplication. See, it's about me saying, man, who can I invest in? Who can I pour in? Who can I disciple? Just like someone did that with me. And if every person in a congregation this side did that, think of the multiplying impact that that is. Some of you are math gurus, and you're already doing it in your mind right now. Yeah, let that blow your mind. Everybody, anyone, anyone like board games? Raise your hand. Like board games? I'm in a crowd of people that like board games. Uh, if you know me, you've heard this joke before. I spell board games B-O-R-E-D. I got, a couple, I got a couple with me. But I endure them because I love my family. Uh, but if you love board games, what's the first thing that you want to do when you sit down to a board game? Don't you hate that so often when you sit down to a board game, they're so stinking complicated? And it's like, dude, just tell me what. How do, what's the objective of this game? Like, I don't need to know if this scenario happens and that scenario happens. No, no, no. Just tell me the objective of the game. Man, I love Sorry. That's the one board game I love. <laughs> love Sorry. It's simple. It's about eliminating the competition. Like, I do like Sorry. That's not B-O-R-E-D. But isn't that true? When you're playing a board game, it's like, what's the objective? And here's what I want to do in closing. I want to define for you what the objective is. If we're called to make and mobilize disciples who represent the gospel to every man, woman, and child, you ought to be asking this question. Then it's important that we ask ourselves, what is a disciple? How do we define that? And this is the way that we're going to define it in this church. Let me give you five characteristics of a disciple. Here's what I love is every one of these characteristics that I am going to give you is being fleshed out in every one of the ministries in this church. Why? Because we go back to Ephesians 4. What has God called us to do? To equip you for the work of the ministry. So in our children's ministry right now, we are pressing these things down. In our youth ministry that meets tonight at 6.30, we're pressing these down. In our college ministry, we are going to press these down. In our adult ministry, in our life groups, in our formation classes, we are pressing these down. And what are they? Here's the first characteristic, commitment to the word. That's your direction. This is how I know what to say yes to and what to say no to. This is how I know where to turn and where not to turn. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, that we want to bring you to the place, if you call this place your church, that we want to bring you to the place to where you begin to see God's word as a joy and not a burden. That's why all summer, what did we do? Man, we're just going to have groups that meet all over the place at all different times just to develop a healthy habit of getting into God's word and understanding what we say every week we gather when God's word is open, God's mouth is open. Man, we want disciples to be committed to the word. Here's the second thing, committed to prayer. That's your dialogue. That's how you talk to God. 
Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, don't be anxious about anything, but what am I supposed to do? But in everything, by what? By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let my requests be made known unto God. And what happens? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Like, that's my dialogue. I want to grow in seeing my relationship with the Lord as that very thing, a relationship that I can tell God what I'm feeling. There's, there's nothing that I need to hide from him. There's nothing that I need to think about. How do I censor that? No, no, no. I want to be committed to prayer. That's my dialogue with a holy God who's my heavenly father, commitment to worship. Man, that's our response. It's so much more than this stage. Though I'm so thankful that this is a way that we worship. No, no, worship is a lifestyle. I am to be a living sacrifice. That's my spiritual act of worship. We want people that are committed to worship. We want people that are committed to community. That you value this gathering. That you value being involved in community outside of this gathering. Why? Because the purpose of it is to stir you up to love and good works, to encourage one another. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, and then... Here's the last characteristic that we're driving home, commitment to mission. And that ought to be my passion. My passion is the purpose that God has given me. To represent the gospel to every man, woman, and child. And I want to make disciples. I want to give to someone what has been given to me. I want to share with someone what I've grown in. And I want to mobilize them, man. I want to get behind them and point them to where God may be leading them so that they can represent the gospel. It's driving home that my life's purpose is more than myself. You know, they, missiologists did a study throughout the different decades and centuries when there were revivals. And what were the common denominators when God moved in an amazing and awesome way? And they found these three things to be the case. Number one, that when God moves, he moves through his people. You're going to allow God to move in your life. Am I going to allow God to move in my life? That it's not people that say, I hope somebody else does that. No, no, no. They found that when God moves, he moves through people. Here's another thing. He moves through leaders who equip others first. I read this book recently. It was entitled Hero Maker. And it looked at Jesus' leadership style. You know what they found? And this isn't profound. But they found that Jesus was a hero maker rather than focusing on himself being the hero. And I wonder in our lives, as we live our lives, are we focused more in the things that we're going after so that we can be seen as the hero, or are we focused more on being a hero maker? See, the four most important letters of the alphabet, and this is not new with me, I thought this was so good though, was I, C, N, U. That for you to say, you know where it starts in me making and mobilizing disciples is just going to someone and say, I want you to know what I see in you. You're probably where you are because someone said that to you. I want to affirm you what I see in you. I see so much more in you than you're settling for. 
They found that that's when, when leaders and people who have been changed by the gospel saw the importance of multiplying themselves, that's when God did a great work. And here's the last thing. What they found is when churches and disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, really took hold of the importance of multiplying. I know this is a little bit different message, but I think it's so important that we begin to lay the seed in defining clearly what is our mission? Why do we exist? Why does this local church exist? Why do I give my resources to this place? Why should I attend this place? Why should I serve in this place? Why should I take the time to be equipped in this place? Why? Because God has called you to glorify him by making and mobilizing disciples who represent the gospel to every man, woman, and child.